Right now on Tech Radio, giant space dish found in Cork. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. This week's show is brought to you in association with TechFire and Manage Engine, who will be answering the question, is automation the future of enterprise defence? The answer is yours in a free webinar this Wednesday, 18th of October. To register, visit techfire.ie. In the meantime, you're welcome to episode 991 of Tech Radio. This week, X and the war in Israel, why the new Delete Act is a good thing, and we discover monk mode in social media. Also, in our feature interview, we hear a stunning story about a giant satellite dish rotting away in Cork that could be used as a radio telescope. Rory Fitzpatrick from the National Space Centre will tell us all. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Joining us, as always, is our Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, I suppose we'll start off with what's making all the headlines this week, and that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm. Uh, And X are are coming under fire as well. Uh, X and breaking news in the last, what, 24 hours or so, Mm. uh, Meta as well. Because, as we know, both platforms are notorious for spreading misinformation. Uh, the EU has come out and said, actually, you're both kind of rubbish. Uh, and we actually have stick to beat you with now in terms of the Digital Services Act. Um, so what has been happening on X in particular is that you remember you start paying your $8 a month. Your content gets promoted to the top of, you know, people's news feeds. Uh, content that is better engagement gets promoted up the top. And it makes finding primary sources and actual news resources very, very difficult to find. Uh, a move that, again, not made easy by X during the week when it decided to strip away headlines from uh, news stories. So you would have to type in your description, post your news story. The headline gets stripped out of it. So you're left with a picture to click on, right? So there's actually nothing really there to kind of grab your attention in the way that that there was. Uh, So that's also been a terrible, terrible development for legitimate news outlets. Uh, Or, of course, you know, it's just because the MSM wants to, you know, steal your brainwaves or some nonsense like that. Um, So this is what's happening. If you've got a blue tick, you're going to the the algorithm says you're all right, even though you could be spreading absolute nonsense. And if you were to go to, you know, trending topics and click and see what people are talking about, indeed, the blue ticks are all up to the top and there's no primary sources. There's nobody on the ground saying, oh, look, this has happened. This has happened. What you're getting is repackaged video game footage, Mm. Photoshop memes Mm -hmm. and... um, Outright misinformation. So what then are the uh, EU do- doing? Well, they've they've done what they've started to do. Is they've sent an angry letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've sent but a letter But what's the difference to... between this angry letter and one from five years ago? Well, this angry letter now, we've got the Digital Services Act, which means that uh, platforms are now liable for the content on them. So it's sort of gotten rid of that um, publisher v. platform dichotomy mm. that big tech yeah. has been hiding behind for, you know, since year dot. Um, so now... Uh, Facebook, Twitter are liable for what happens on their 
platforms. Yeah. And you remember, it's like 6% of global turnover. Yeah, it's a lot. It's I want, a lot I of I kind of wonder what, because Elon Musk seems to be more politically involved, shall we say, mm. uh, especially with the Ukraine war and, uh, and and various things like that. I wonder what he'll do. We'll we'll find out over the next week. And of course, we'll keep you updated at uh, text. No, I tell you exactly what he's going to do. He's, oh, he's, oh, prediction. Because he started doing it. He started saying, look for better sources to inform yourself. Sources that he, his system... Make sure you will never be exposed to. But anyway, we should move on. Well, listen, uh, Twitter, uh, somebody defined it really well as being like kind of a putrid dish of hate and vileness. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Now, listen, let's move on to the Delete Act. Now, Delete seems very negative, but in this particular case, it's a good thing. Hey, if you if you're happen to live in the state of California, it's pretty awesome. Uh, now, California has become something of a... a Trend, mm-hmm. uh, trend maker uh, when it comes to uh, data protection and protecting the individual uh, from big tech, uh, which is kind of interesting given, you know, where Silicon Valley is. But maybe they, they see themselves as being at the kind of the epicentre of these developments and they need to be seen to, to, to lead the way on these things. So the Delete Act is basically, you know, the way in the EU, the idea is that you have control of your data and you can tell people, you know, X, Y, Z, I want that gone, I want that gone. Yeah. I'm not giving permission for, for cookies to do whatever. What California's Delete Act does is it allows you to go to what they call data brokers. Um, these are the people that sort of harvest data for use in behavioural advertising, which you can still do in the States, you can't really do in Europe anymore, um, and say, OK, I want my data taken out of that, but not sort of having to go to each company individually and say, I want my data gone, I want my data gone. You can do it once for all the brokers to take out your data. Now, that is a good thing because you just never know who has your data. You're aware of Facebook, but you probably aren't aware of the hundred other people who have data on you. Yeah, yeah. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't come into effect until 2026. And there's still a little bit of debate as to, you know, how are you actually going to enforce this? Mm. Uh, You've got like a a two-year, two-and-a-half-year sort of uh, window for companies to come up with ways to get around it. Mm. Um, But in principle, I think it's great. Uh, Again, it shows America taking another leaf out of the, you know, GDPR-esque playbook. Mm. Also, kind of the right to be forgotten as well, which we also have. Well, exactly. And it's not America. I think it's California in particular Mm. uh, that are kind of leading the way with this. And what I'm finding is that whatever the EU do, and if California follow or vice versa, then it seems to just kind of just go worldwide. Yeah, uh, and, or, and, or it's, and it's a good thing, thereupon. or variations thereupon. Yes, mm. but I think it's a good thing, and that definitely being able to kind of just go to one person and say, "Delete all my data everywhere." Boom, done. Yeah, love it. Um, monk mode is another thing that I mentioned in the uh, in the intro. What on earth is this? Because you know I'm not a religious person, so don't be filling me with uh, uh, stuff. Yeah, no. Um, this is, I didn't realise this was a thing or that a word has been put on this because, as you know, like with our smart devices, we've got like a, you know, shut off everything kind of mode or a focus mode, they call it in iOS, where, you know, it just sort of um, silos away all your distractions mm. for a while until you're ready to go back and uh, engage with your device again. Apparently, this is called monk mode. Something that we we had already. Now we've got a now we've got a name for it. So maybe more people will be doing it. Uh, apparently, it came from the, from the TikToks. Came from TikTok, um, and it's just uh, people have 
put a stamp on it. Yep, I'm now in, get in monk mode. I'll talk to you later. So, yeah. So bas basically you're putting yourself into a seminary temporarily so that uh, the world can't get at you. Well, yeah. Or, you know, if you wanted to be Sylvia, Sylvia Plath uh, and you're a bit morbid, maybe a bell jar <laughs> or something like that. Do you know what I see a lot now uh, ads for? And I, I think it's a good idea, but it's like, oh, why? Uh, it's with smartphones and it's distraction-free uh, yeah. operating systems. So essentially when you turn on your phone, you just get a list of your apps in plain text and that's it. It's the most boring looking thing in the world. But the same idea mm. is that you don't have flashing lights and distractions and notifications and, uh, oh my God, notifications driving that and the cookie notices every time I want to go and do something they pop up and go oh by the way just uh, before you do that thing that you need to do now like would you I, be interested in I <laughs> accept cookie mode as a necessary evil I'm I'm cool with cookie mode all right okay. one trust you are my friend all right okay um AI uh, also making the news today now this is kind of something that has come up before with data centers and stuff like that mm. tell me tell me what's making the news yeah so uh, our situation with data centres in Ireland is kind of complicated because our national grid is built for a small population um, and that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. Data centres are massive facilities that consume massive amounts of power as it is. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, managing the compute power that's needed or the cooling systems that are needed to look after them. And it was either last year or two years ago, there was a warning of a, a brownout, basically where there was stress coming on the national grid, just from, you know, the country doing what it's doing, but data centres being a significant part of it. I think it's something that data centres accounts for like 10% of the energy used in Ireland. I think, I think it's higher, I think it's 20. Yeah, like it's a ridiculous statistic. And when you, when you look at it, you think, Jeepers, okay, we've got to up our game on this. And there are strategies like having microgrids by using a lot of renewable energy. There are things out there. Um, initially, it was thought that there would be a moratorium put on the uh, development of data centres. Not so. Uh, the government has come out saying we are, we are pro data centre. We are, uh, you know, Amazon has three opening up in Dublin. TikTok has one just mm. opened. Um, so they're still yeah, being but, built. But the, the government aren't doing it with wild abandon. It's not a free-for-all, yeah. okay? So there are, you know, kind of restrictions in there. And we had the story of Amazon uh, with their data centres are going in, but they had to, it's like a, a carbon neutral kind of a thing, where for the amount of power that they were going to use, they had to also generate the same amount of power and put it back into the grid. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, then spare a thought for one Alex de Vries, a PhD candidate at VU Amsterdam School of Business and Economics. Mm -hmm. Anthony, he sort of asked the question, how much you know, power is our data centres using, you know, on an annual basis Go around on the then. world. Go on then. You could run the Netherlands. Yeah, all right, yeah, whatever. That, that you're just taking a statistic out of the air and go, oh, look at this, boom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of like, why, why would I need to eat a bunch of bananas when I could eat just one Mars bar? Yeah, well, I think I, I have to sort of add a little bit of wrinkle to that stat because it's not data centres as we know them right now. OK. Oh, oh, we are looking at data centres since the arrival of ChatGPT and assuming the use of AI continues at the rate it's going at the ah. moment. Right. OK, so what you're saying then is like we had the data centre problem and that was it's using 20 percent of the energy in Ireland. And yeah. this is a problem, blah, 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 blah. But now that AI has arrived fully and ChatGPT and the likes, uh, it has just like boom, mushroomed yeah. overnight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So we're going to have to sort of re um, uh, redesign the goalposts on this, move mm-hmm. the goalposts, because uh, we all of a sudden have you know another another player. I suppose. Well, I suppose if you put it that way, the argument that I always got back from people uh, that I talk to who run these data centres, and I think it's a great argument, they go, yes, it uses a colossal amount of energy. However, when you look at what it is doing compared to, you know, the way it could be, uh, it's saving a huge amount. So, for instance, say a data centre is using a million bloody blah, blah blah of whatever, all right? Mm-hmm. If everybody had their own individual computers holding all of that data, we would be using two million. Yeah. That's yeah. the argument. Okay. Now, here's another counter-argument that is mentioned in this article. It's on the BBC. Um, one thing that AI could be used to do to offset sort of, you know, greenhouse gases uh-huh. is in selecting the most effective altitude for altitude for planes to fly at that they would produce the least in terms of greenhouse gases and vapour trails. All right, interesting uh, segue there. Go on. Yep, so Google and American Airlines have been working on this and it's basically about finding the the optimum altitude for a flight to make sure it would have the least impact on the environment. And this is one use of AI that, you know, is being done at the moment. Uh. So if you look at, oh God, AI is taking up so much power, this is going to be terrible. If it becomes a sort of a, well, yeah, it's taking up lots of power here. But but you're going to balance it at the other end, like we were saying about the data centres. I have got a counter-argument again. Ooh, I'm listening. Why don't we just go to ChatGPT and ask it for the answer to this problem? Because it would probably break the grid. It would probably just come back with gibbly goop. From 10 years ago. It's a computer. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Or, or, you know, trained on Reddit. (laughs) Listen, final story today. It is with heavy heart that we say goodbye to one of our treasured national computing institutions called Airtel. Do you know what? My first television that I bought myself, right? Not the ones I grew up with, but the one one I got myself to make sure it was modern, right? Oh, look at this. this It's got Airtel. Yeah, it was a 21-inch CRT (laughs) with Nikam stereo. Oh, come on. From Philips. Yeah. Uh, I saw them everywhere, actually, for a while. And uh, it had Airtel. And the amount of time I, I went through Airtel just scrolling things, looking for mm. the headlines and all this kind of... I, it was probably most likely pre-broadband for me as well. So I'd be sitting there going, what's, what's after happening now? Let's check Airtel. Do you know, it's, a, it's amazing that Airtel is kind of has lasted this long. And I suppose, why not? It's only using a little bit of the, the, the a small, tiny bit of bandwidth at the top. And it's getting its information from whatever websites. Mm. RT will have a, an Airtel feed or whatever, yeah. like, you know. But back in the day, it was something else. And they had CFAX. I remember the first Airtel that I saw was CFAX mm. in the BBC when I was on holidays uh, with my auntie over there. And then I think before that in school, and this is going way back, not quite to the head schools, but a little bit <laughs> faster. Uh, and uh, they were talking about in France, they had a thing called Minitel, which was through your phone line. Which, Imagine which we, that. Yeah. Some kind of an information device in your home connected by a wire to a network. Yeah. Who'd we, have thought? We did a piece on uh, Minitel a couple of years ago with John Stern. He went through the history of it. Mm. Side note, if you wanted to develop an app for the Minitel in Ireland, you needed to have 25 
£25,000 in the bank. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Times have changed. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised Airtel is still on the go or that it's still a feature even even on TVs, especially with uh, digital television, because it was an analogue television thing. It was, So yeah, they carried yeah. it through into, into DTV. Yeah, they did, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, anyway. they're closing down the service. Yeah, yeah. Ostensibly, Who's okay, you? we're going to put the put the money into, you know, player or our websites or anything like that. Yes. Uh, if you want the content, it's, you know, probably on your smartphone. So okay, Grant. So let me file Airtel away with Ryan Tuberty. There we go, Grant. Niall, thank you very much for keeping us up to date with the news. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. What's 32 metres wide, weighs 220 tonnes and sits in a field near Middleton in Cork? If you guessed a giant satellite dish, you would be absolutely right. The Elfordstown Earth Observation Ground Station has the potential to be a world-class radio telescope. All it needs is a little TLC. Rory Fitzpatrick is CEO of the National Space Centre here in Ireland, and he laid out the history of this impressive piece of infrastructure and its potential role in providing a line of communication to the moon and beyond. He spoke with Niall Kitson. Rory, when I read about the Big Dish uh, initially, I thought it a fascinating piece of infrastructure that we have just literally out in the wilderness kind of rotting. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what the Big Dish actually is and where it came from? Because it did actually have a very important use at one point. It did. Um, That's really interesting, just what you're saying about it being a unique piece of infrastructure. There's, There's not that many of these left in the world now. Um, you've only got eight or ten of of these antennas that are uh, that are available to be used. So so it is it is a very globally it's a very important piece of infrastructure that that needs to we need to do something with. Now with regard to the background, it, it is a very interesting story and and it's kind of a um, an unusual thing. I grew up eight miles away from the dish and I didn't even know it existed until two thousand five. Um, and it was like Ireland's best kept secret. Um, a lot of people, when they come down, they say, oh, my God, like, how do we not know about this? This is just absolutely amazing. Just the scale and the size of it. It's it's 100 feet across, sitting on the roof of our building in, in Elfordstone in Middleton, uh, 220 tons. And, and it just is, engineering-wise, it's a beast. So the background was that Europe, um, if you wanted to communicate between Europe and America back in the late 70s, early 80s, your telephone signal was taken down your telephone line, converted into a wave, beamed from uh, Goonhilly in the UK over to New York, decoded New York back into the system in the States. Um, But the problem was that they were charging a lot of money to the European telecoms to do this, British Telecom were. So the rest of the European telecoms came together and they said, right, we're going to do our own thing. So they set up a company uh, across all the telecoms called the European um, Satellite Telephone Company, UTELSAT, European Telephone Satellite Company, yeah, UTELSAT. And they um, they grouped together and decided they would build a new radio telescope or a, a communication dish, C-band communication antenna to take the signal from Europe to America. When they looked for the best location in Europe, Ireland is the most westerly part of Europe. Uh, we have a better view of satellites than a lot of the, the Spain and Portugal. Uh, because within Ireland, Cork is in the south. Uh, uh, it's a better view from the south. And then within the Cork region, the infrastructure is better um, for communicating and fibre and, and power and stuff. 
So this is why Elfredstone was chosen as the perfect location. And funnily, it's still a perfect location for satellites beaming to America. Um, so so this, this was the, the plan that they would build a dish to take telephone traffic from Europe to America. It came online in 1984. And from that point until 1997, it ran as a radio telescope carrying traffic from Europe to America. Now, at that point, they ran fiber across the Atlantic. And once the fiber ran, it became obsolete. But they didn't switch it off straight away because they needed a backup in case the fiber failed or they didn't really know how resilient the fiber was. So from from 97 to 2005, they ran synchronicity. And then after that, they um, they cut back the dish and they were going to mothball it and bulldoze the site back to a greenfield site. Now, we started negotiating with Aircom in 2005-06. We ended up signing a lease and taking over the site in 2010. And we finally bought the site in 2015. So that's it became ours at that point. So that's, that's the background and the history for it. So you're you're in possession of you know we'll still call it the the big dish which actually in comparison to what's happening in Europe not only is it you know kind of unique still but it also has capabilities in excess of newer infrastructure that's being built abroad Absolutely. And this is one of the really key things here uh, that we need to protect the dish for is that right now NASA are willing to use um, any dishes like this in the world that are available for uh, deep space communications to Moon and Mars. And that's going to be the next big thing in this area. uh, This is what the big dishes are being converted to. Now, NASA will use our dish if we refurb it, but we're a small company in Cork. We don't have the money to refurb this dish. It will cost around $5 fully to get the dish back working 100%. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but NASA have paid over 35 million to build a, a similar sized dish in Latin America recently. And this, this, the, the cost of replacing this is vast. Um, you know, the, the, the cost of refurbing is a lot less for the, for the size of infrastructure that it is. So that's, that's a very, very important thing. And of course, like you say, the future missions, we, we are going to have people landing on Mars soon. And this is going to just create a whole new exciting industry and area for mankind. It, it's very, very, very big on a fundamental human scale that we are going to start moving to another planet. Uh, and and these dishes are going to be like hen's teeth. And I want to make sure that our dish is back refurbed and available for use for Irish universities and colleges to communicate to the moon and Mars and do deep space radio astronomy. So this sounds pretty much like, a, you know, to, to use a, a hackneyed phrase, a, a no-brainer. However, accessing funding is something of a challenge for you. Um, it, it is, and it's, 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 a, it's not a... It's very difficult when we're sitting in the middle of this because ideally this is a government project. And around the globe, an awful lot of these projects are big government projects where government will put large chunks of money up there, build these pieces of infrastructure, and they'll roll them out. Now, Ireland, we don't have a pedigree in space. We don't have a background or a history in this area. Um, We, uh, you know, from the 80s and 90s, we didn't have the money for it. And to be honest, over the last 10 or 15 years, to allocate money to this when we needed money in hospitals and other stuff is a hard task to do. Additionally, 
we have a situation where we're a private company and can't get funding uh, for one specific piece of infrastructure uh, that that we can privately make profit off. So, so this creates a problem, and also the Irish science, um, uh, the Irish science community is funded through Science Foundation Ireland and the HEIs. So we can't access that money. So we're, we're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place where this is generally government funded infrastructure. And we're competing with that all over the globe. Um, NASA and other big agencies want to use it, but the government don't have a mechanism or a way to support us and give us funding. So, so I need to make sure that the dish doesn't fall into disrepair. And it needs a lot of money. Every, every two years, we need to clean it down uh, and power hose it, which you know, is, is a substantial cost. There is small bits of rust on it that need to be dealt with. And there's a whole new radio frequency chain and communication system need to be put in. Now, the last piece we can do with partners in industry, because there is a viable uh, business out the back end, but the other part of it, we need support from. And this is what we're doing this call for, is to try and get support to try and save this dish from rotting away. So when we're talking about um, looking for partners, be it in the academic sector, be it in the business world, one of the things that we're hearing an awful lot about space uh, 4.0 is sort of the industrialization of space exploration. And we know that there's a lot going on in terms of Irish companies finding use in the space program in the ESA or NASA for inventions that are already out there. Do you think there's scope for engaging with companies or maybe with organizations like the Irish Space Association to find that sort of common ground uh, and go, actually, you know, uh, you might know you're working on something, but if you're a telecommunications company, you know, we've got this thing over here. Why not come down and have a look at it? Absolutely. And this is this is really the point wh- that we've got to, because we did engage over the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of work with private companies on communicating the satellite. So in Elphinstone and Middleton, the main job we do is work for global companies to communicate to satellite fleets from uh, Earth. Now, we've also been tipping away in the background and trying to get stuff done on the radio telescope and get support. Now, because of the structures and the way things have run, that didn't work up until now. Now, things are, things are shifting a lot, and you really, really are uh, right at the start of this whole area opening up. The reason why people are interested in the commercialization of it is because there's a lot of things that commercial companies can do a lot cheaper than government agencies and bodies can do. And it's generally the heavy lifting. So like, if you look at stuff like SpaceX's launch program, they're able to launch a lot quicker and cheaper than um, than NASA can because they're allowed fail. And this is one of the really, really big things that makes a difference between the two. If a government agency fails, there's huge ramifications because the government wants to know why they failed. They're put under pressure because it's taxpayers' money. And that's fair. And that's perfectly reasonable. Whereas a private company can go in and fail 50 times. And once the board can see that there's a return coming back in the long term, they'll be happy enough with that. In fact, I was at um, I was at the induction of Gwen Shotwell, who runs SpaceX, into the Hall of Fame in in America, in the Smithsonian, and it was fascinating. Her video was uh, was a video with classical music playing and rockets exploding. Fifty two explosions they had of rockets that failed, and that's why 
they got to the famous picture where you had two rockets landing side by side. Now, that accelerated learning was through failure. And, and, that's, and that's really what the, what's happening at the moment is that all these private companies are getting money to play around and test stuff. And a lot of them won't succeed. A lot of these private companies will not make the billions and, and, and make it to the stars. But some will. And the, the guys that will will do it way quicker than the government agencies could do on their own. So that's, that's the advantage. Now, with regard to our, our project here, is that Science Foundation Ireland have come back recently and are very, very interested. And we're trying to find a path at the moment to get to an engagement with government. And this is why we've, we've structured the, the plan the way we have. So we've set up a separate company, which is currently a subsidiary of NSC, a National Space Centre. And that is going to be run as a non-profit company to manage and maintain the big dish. And hopefully that will allow us to engage with the HEIs, the universities and the colleges and and find a path to get this dish into government programs and into R&D research um, use for the nation. And if somebody wants to learn more about the big dish, where can they do so? The big dish.ie. <laughs> it's the it's the easiest one to look at if they uh, if they either national space center website or the big dish.ie it's just big dish b i g d i s h.ie and that was Rory Fitzpatrick, CEO of the National Space Centre. If you'd like to get involved in the restoration of The Big Dish, there will be a fundraising day on Tuesday the 17th of October coming from 2 to 9pm where YouTuber Jordan Wright, also known as the Angry Astronaut, will be live streaming interviews, tours and giveaways. The website is bigdish.ie and of course you'll find that in the show notes. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week sponsored by Techfire in association with Manage Engine. Remember to visit techfire.ie for more information on their webinar, which is coming on Wednesday. Also, check out more stories online that we didn't have time to talk about in the podcast today, including Microsoft recognizing Ergo with a significant award, Data Solutions getting acquired, and a new digital transformation fund for micro SMEs in the tourism sector. You'll find those and more online at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can always get new episodes automatically by just clicking follow on your podcast player. Until then, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, as always, thanks for listening. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.